Josh and Ryan Eshelman and Bernie Sheely and who else sing a quartet? I think of that. Jeb Lukens. Jeb, you should have seen the look back there. All right. Ruth chapter 2 in your Bibles this evening. Ruth chapter 2. It's good to see you. Trust that you had a restful, beneficial afternoon. Ruth chapter 2, and we'll just read to begin with tonight the first verse of this chapter. Two Sunday nights ago, uh, we started into Ruth chapter 2 on the theme of grace, titling it Finding Grace, and two weeks ago we considered the hap of grace, God's gracious haps, and uh, from Ruth's example, things that we can do to put ourselves on a pathway of intersection with the gracious working of God. And tonight, we're going to consider the grace of God's help in our lives. Ruth chapter number 2 and verse number 1. And let me just say this. The grace of God's help comes through a helper, a person. Verse number 1, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, of course referring to Elimelech, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, And his, this kinsman's name was Boaz. I can't wait to meet Boaz when we get to heaven. What a man he must have been. What a man he is now uh, in the presence of the Lord. And uh, Boaz becomes the helper of grace in the life of Ruth. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us as we look into your word tonight. I'm grateful for the privilege that it is to study uh, your grace in this wonderful Old Testament story. And I ask now for your help, your strength, for each of us as listeners, as we sit under the influence of your word, I pray that like a gentle drizzle, it would just soak its life-changing power into each of us, and that you would use it uh, as the word of your grace to be an eternal help in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The plight of widows... In Old Testament Israel, without a kinsman, was very bleak. The plight of you and me without a kinsman is very bleak. Boaz's name means, in him is strength. And what a fitting name for the man who would be the human channel of grace in Ruth's life. Grace was mediated through a person in Ruth's life. Grace is mediated through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. When I think about the word help, I think about several times in the New Testament that help was referenced. The word was used as it related to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Syrophoenician woman Uh, who asked the Lord Jesus one of the rare times that he stepped outside of Israel into Gentile territory, the Syrophoenician woman asked the Lord to help her. She used the word. When Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember there was a father there with his demon-possessed sons, or son, the disciples had not been able to cast the demon out, and this father twice referenced the help that he needed. And then he even said this, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And then our hearts are often stirred by Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 16 that it's at the throne of grace that we find 
the help that we need. The word help that is used in the New Testament is a nautical term, interestingly enough, that speaks to a measure that a ship would take when it was in a storm. It would literally loop cables or large ropes under the belly of the ship in the midst of a storm and then with leverage cinch those ropes or cables and it would support the underbelly of the ship. And those ropes were called the help of that ship. Aren't you glad that underneath are the everlasting arms of His grace? I'll tell you what I'm going to do with Ruth chapter 2 tonight. And this is a passage where it's really easy to do that. I'm going to follow C.H. Spurgeon's advice. And he told young preachers, when you take a text, make a beeline for the cross. I think about the song that Josh just sang. I think about the song, all your anxiety, all your care. Bring to the mercy seat, leave it there. One of my boyhood favorites, Christ is all I need. And then one that my dad used to sing as a solo, and then he passed it on to me. Jesus gives me a song as I travel along in life's luring, lonesome way. I can sing as I go, for there's one thing I know that will lift life's heavy load. Jesus gives me a song. I used to sing that song to Elena at night uh, when she was having trouble going to sleep. Uh, I think maybe I've done it once or twice even in the last several years. There's just something about it. If you don't know the song, you would love it. Here's another one as we think about the Lord being our helper. This is one of my favorites. All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone. Longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Hallelujah, I have found him, whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus, Jesus satisfies my longings through his blood. I now am saved. So our proposition tonight is simply this. As we look at the story of Boaz being the helper of Ruth and Naomi, in that Old Testament picture, the kinsman redeemer, and just as widows needed a kinsman because of their destitution, you and I as sinners need a kinsman redeemer because of the destitution in our lives. And I want to just say simply tonight, Christ is all we need. Boaz was who Ruth and Naomi needed. Christ is all we need. Four tokens of help that I see illustrated in this passage to picture for us the help that Boaz was to Ruth and Naomi in a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ at the same time. The first was Boaz's wealth. He's called in verse number one, a mighty man of wealth. The word wealth is broader than to just refer to how much money he had in a bank account or how much land he owned. The word wealth spoke of Boaz's being a man of character. He was a man of integrity. He was on the outside what he was on the inside. He was a man of influence, and that made him a mighty man of wealth in a much broader sense than dollar signs. He was a man of wealth and that he was a man of faith. Synonyms for this word wealth in other places in the scriptures are virtue and valor. A man of virtue, a man of valor. 
And what a bright light Boaz was in the days when the judges ruled. Just as Ruth was a bright light, a star against a sin-blackened night sky, so Boaz, as a man of wealth, was the same. Can I say this? They were a divine match for each other. Can I just say, here's a very practical note. Young people, become the kind of person you want to marry. You want to marry character? Let God make character in you. Become the kind of person you want to marry. And what a, what a stark contrast Boaz was to the days when the judges ruled. I just finished reading the book of Judges earlier this past week. And it, 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 you want to talk about sordid. You want to go take a bath after you read the book of Judges. You ever notice that? You, you just you, you, And you look at the nation of Israel and some of the sins that they tolerated were the sins that in the Pentateuch, the Canaanites were guilty of. Let me just say this is a warning to God's people. We are not immune to the sins of this world. Okay. I read those last three chapters of the book of Judges and there's this Levite from up around the Jezreel Valley on the other side of Mount Ephraim that takes himself a concubine from Bethlehem, Judah, interestingly enough, the same place where the story of Ruth takes place, takes a concubine back from Bethlehem, Judah to Mount Ephraim. She plays the harlot after a time and goes back to her daddy's house in Bethlehem, Judah. Well, he goes after her after four months. Goes after his concubine. And after several days of trying to get away to go back home, they finally leave the father's house. They don't want to stop. The, the Levite says, I'm not stopping to his servant. He said, I'm not stopping in Jerusalem because those Jebusites are there. They're a bunch of Canaanites. They're really bad people. And so they stop on the northwest side of Jerusalem in a place called Gibeah in the tribal a land of Benjamin, the same place where King Saul would come from. They stay there in the night. Men come beating on the door as they're in a house as a guest. Men come beating on the door. Send that man out to us that we may know him. Sound familiar? Genesis chapter 18 and 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet now the same thing's happening in Israel. It's all in the time when the judges ruled. The man of the house sends out his daughter, offers to send out his daughter. This man also offers to send out, and he does send out his concubine. And the men of the city of Gibeah and Benjamin abuse that man's concubine. The next morning he opens the door and she lays there nearly dead at the doorstep. He picks her up, takes her home. She, he's so upset over it. The Bible tells us he took a knife and cut her in 12 pieces and sent the parts of her body to all of the tribal areas of, of Israel. You say, Pastor, that's a little grotesque. It's judges. It's what happens when every man does that which is right in their own eyes. So this man calls a meeting at Mizpah and all the tribes gather together. What are we going to do about this? And so they decide to demand of Gibeah that they turn over the men that did this thing. The Benjamites in Gibeah refused to do so. They gather an army of 26,700 people. I believe it's 26,000. Let me look here. I got it written in the margin Bible. 26,700. The rest of the nation of Israel numbers over 400,000. 
They go against Gibeah and the Benjamites of Gibeah come out and slay 22,000 of the tribe of Judah. And then, should we go back and do this again the next day? Go back. So they go back again the next day. The next day, the men of Benjamin out of the city of Gibeah come out and slay 18,000. Anybody doing arithmetic? Finally, before it's over with, they're given the victory, the men of Israel are, and 25,100 of Benjamin are slain on the third day. Folks, 22,000, 18,000, 25,100, there are only 600 men of Benjamin left. These are, this is all in the last three chapters of the book of Judges. There are only 600 left. And they've killed everybody else of the tribe of Benjamin, the people of Israel have. What do we do now? We don't want to wipe out one of the tribes. So doing that which is right in their own eyes. They said, well, you know what? Let's just put an army together. Who didn't come to the meeting? The men of Jabesh-Gilead didn't come. Let's just go wipe out Jabesh-Gilead and take all of their young daughters and give them to the men of Benjamin so that they can have wives. Because we don't want, you know, as I re, I'm not going to, I'm just going to stop right there. Okay, But as I'm sitting there reading that, I'm thinking, you know what? When man does that which is right in his own eyes, he always messes things up. He contributes to the darkness. And yet here is Boaz in the middle of that kind of mess is a man of wealth when it comes to his character and his integrity. <laughs> I get asked and sometimes I ask myself the question, you know, how, how do we... Stand for God in a dark day. I remember hearing a preacher say years ago, has it ever occurred to you that there was a time when one man, his wife, his three sons and three daughters-in-law were the only people on the planet who stood for God? Noah. And as my dad used to say, Mrs. Noah. And Shemhem and Japheth and their wives stood for God as a fruit of their faith. Boaz, this man of wealth, a man of character, influence, faith, set off as a stark contrast. May God give us men of character. Men who will stand, men who will shine like a bright light, and out of the wealth of their character, out of the wealth of their influence, out of the wealth of their faith, out of the wealth of their virtue and their valor, will be not just a repository, but a channel of grace in the lives of those that God's entrusted to their care. But Boaz is only a picture of one far greater in wealth, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us of Jesus that his help to us is supplied out of the depths of God's grace. John would say in John chapter number 1 that he was full of grace. And of his grace have all we received, and I love this, and grace for grace. It's the idea of grace in the place of grace Grace for every need and every trial. In other words, whatever the need is, God has customized grace for it right out of the wealth of Jesus Christ. Paul would say of Christ in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 3, that in him are hid all the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And he would say in verse number 9 of the same chapter, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How did Boaz give such wonderful help to Ruth and Naomi. It was out of his wealth, but far more than monetary wealth. 
And the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ he was and the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice the second token of Boaz's help to Ruth and Naomi, and that was his willingness. His willingness to be the kinsman redeemer. Maybe you've heard a message before on the requirements of being a kinsman redeemer. Obviously, the first one is that he be kin, that he be a blood relative. But it was possible that a man could be a blood relative and not be willing to do the work of the kinsman, and we see that in Ruth chapter number 3 and 4. But it's possible that a man could be willing but not be able because he lacked the resources. The fourth characteristic of the kinsman redeemer, not only must he be kin by blood, not only must he be willing to do the work of the kinsman redeemer, he must be able, but fourthly, and this is a big one, he must be free from the debt that encumbered the one who needed redeemed. There's an interesting drama and tension in the story. And it, I, I sometimes wish with a story like this, and, and this is just a little fanciful in my mind here, but I sometimes wish I could hit a temporary erase button so that I could read a story brand new for the first time again. You, you know what I'm saying? I think there's a sense sometimes in which reading some of these amazing narratives in the Scripture, we kind of just are getting through it because we already know what comes next. Ruth didn't know what was coming next. The Bible tells us, think about the tension of this story. The Bible tells us in verse number 1 of chapter 2 that Naomi had a kinsman named Boaz, this mighty man of wealth. Notice, if you would, as, as, the, as the plot moves along, verse number 20, Ruth comes home from that first day of gleaning in the field, and Naomi said unto her, verse number 20, said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near kin unto us, one of our next kinmen, kinsmen. That's all good, but there's still no assurance that he will do the right or fulfill the responsibility of the kinsman. This is all still uncertain and unknown to them. You and I know what's coming. I want to step into these stories sometimes and say, hey, Ruth, just hang on. It gets really good. The tension continues. The uncertainty, chapter 3 and verse number 2. Naomi says to Ruth, And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? We move ahead to verse number 9 of chapter number 3. Ruth, Naomi sends Ruth to the threshing floor to claim, to request of Boaz that he fulfill the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. Verse number 9, she answered and said, uh, I am, or she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Again, there's great risk taking place here. They don't know, she doesn't know how this is going to turn out. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 12. And now it is true, Boaz is speaking. I love this dialogue. I am thy near kinsman. Okay, he's admitted that. Howbeit, all of a sudden there's a new factor enters into the story. I can only imagine what was going through Ruth's mind when she heard this. You know, she's thinking, this is really great. Boaz uh, has accepted my presence in the threshing floor. This is really good. 
But then he throws this in there. But there's someone closer to relation than I am. Oh, no. Tarry this night and it shall be in the morning that if he will perform. I hate waiting, don't you? Wait till morning. I wonder if she even slept that night. That if he will perform unto thee the part of the kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. I would almost think Ruth would want to say at this point, isn't there some kind of loophole or exception where we can just nail you down and cut this other guy out of the picture? But if he will not do the part of the kinsman to thee, then I will do the part of a kinsman to thee. As the Lord liveth, lie down until morning. Chapter number 4 and verse number 14. After Boaz has gone to the city gates and the whole dialogue has taken place there with the kinsman who refused to redeem the land and to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And now it's seen finally after all the suspense and the hours of delay that Boaz is not only identified as a kinsman, get this, but is willing and able. The ladies of the city say, Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day. Verse number 14 of chapter 4. He's not left thee this day without a kinsman. But as we look at Boaz, we see his willingness. But I look beyond Boaz to the greater kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think of a man who said to him when he requested healing, he said to Jesus, if thou canst do anything, and Jesus said, I will. I've imagined in my mind the mystery of heaven's host since the day that Satan fell and led rebellion that resulted in man sinning in the Garden of Eden. Angels are not omniscient. And I even wonder what they may have wondered in heaven about how the work of redemption and the kinsman redeemer would be accomplished. And I wonder if on the day that it was announced in heaven that Jesus would be the kinsman redeemer. Aren't you glad that Jesus came? Not, not even some high-ranking angel, someone that may have even been or seemed expendable, but the crown prince of heaven came as our kinsman redeemer. The mystery of heaven's hosts was answered they may have wondered, who will go? The question of humanity for centuries and even millennium was answered as Jews in particular lived in the hope of the seed of woman that would come and wondering what form he would take, who he would be, what he would look like. Would he be willing? And then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. No man takes my life from me. He said, I lay it down of myself. And if I lay it down of myself, I will take it up again. Jesus, the willing kinsman redeemer. The one who was kin to us, he took upon him, the author of Hebrews would say, the nature of children, flesh and blood, so that he could be kin to you and me. And get this, get this, the body that he took is the body he still has. In his deity, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. No questions about it. But get this, for the work of redemption in his humanity, he did allow a change. And get this, as a token of his submission to the will of the Father and the work of the cross, Jesus took upon himself a body that he will have for eternity, for you and for me. People question how much God loves them. 
Look at the fact that Jesus took a body so that blood could be shed, so that he could be kin to us. And he did so willingly and yet free of the debt of sin that encumbered us. And so Boaz was the help of grace to Ruth and Naomi through his wealth, through his willingness. And then as I look at Ruth chapter number 2, I see that he was also a help of grace to Ruth and Naomi through his words. His willingness, his wealth, his words. Chapter number 2 could nearly be outlined on the words of Boaz. Notice, if it, notice it if you would. Verse number 4, chapter 2. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto his reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Verse number 5. Then said Boaz. Verse number 8. Then said Boaz. Verse number 11, And Boaz answered and said unto her. Verse number 14, And Boaz said unto her. Verse number 15, And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Verse number 21, When Ruth gets home that night, she quotes Boaz, And Ruth the Moabitess said, He said unto me also. Everything hinged on what Boaz said. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. People marveled at the gracious words that our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus, spoke. What life-giving words he spoke. As I look at Boaz's words, I see in verse number four that they were words of association with the Lord. When he spoke, he was not ashamed of the Lord. What a lesson for us. In verse number five, and we touched on this two weeks ago, his words were words of submission. When he asked whose damsel is this, he was wanting to know who she belonged to, who her authority was, so that he would be in a right relationship to whoever the authority was. Verses 8 and 9, Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have not I charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? Boaz's words here were words of prevention and words of protection. The application of this verse that we can make for our lives today as it relates to Boaz, restraint, if you would. I preached a message on this passage called the field of grace. Stay in the field of grace. Grace is abused by a lot of so-called preachers today. Grace is not permission to sin. Let me tell you that one of the greatest demonstrations of and characteristics of the grace of God is to protect us from sin. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And one of the most gracious things that Boaz ever said to Ruth was, stay in my field. And let me say this, one of the most gracious things that Jesus Christ says to us is to stay in his field. Stay in his will. Prevention and protection is there. Boundaries from those that God has placed in authority over our lives, boundaries that Boaz placed upon Ruth. Do you know what I notice about Ruth? 
Ruth's response when Boaz said, stay in my field. Some people nowadays would have looked at Boaz and said, legalist. Who are you to tell me what field I can go into? Do you notice what Ruth's response was? She fell on her face and said, this is grace. This is grace. That this man would care enough for me to identify the boundaries and my associations for the sake of my protection. Okay. His words were words of affirmation. Verses 11 and 12 what he says to her and commends her for turning her back on her home in order to become a follower of Jehovah. In verse number 12, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. His words were also words of provision. Verses 14 through 16, Boaz said unto her at mealtime, come thou hither. And I won't go into all the detail of this, but Boaz is breaking all of the protocol when it came to what a landowner was responsible for for servants and gleaners. He had absolutely no responsibility whatsoever to provide meals for the gleaners. Gleaners were in his field by grace to get whatever scraps were left behind. And so Boaz becomes a tremendous picture of the abundant grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that he doesn't just allow her in his field, but he says, hey, come eat here with us and the hired servants. He starts piling on the lunch, gives her a bunch to take home to her mother-in-law, and then he tells the gleaners or the harvesters in the field, leave her some handfuls on purpose. That's different than the scraps that were left behind with gleaning. He's, and let her glean among the sheaves and leave those handfuls on purpose. He's essentially telling his reapers, listen, every once in a while, on purpose, take a big chunk in your hand, and if you see Ruth close by, drop a big handful. If you want to know what a tremendous token of grace and generosity this was, look at Naomi's response when Ruth comes home that evening. Where did you glean today? Naomi was an old hand at this. She knew what an average day's gleaning would bring in. The equivalent here is 17 two-liter bottles of grain that she brought home. Far beyond the average day's gleaning, it was obvious somebody had been gracious to Ruth. Can I tell you that in our lives as believers, we need to live in a very clear way and in such a way that the people of this world can look at us and see it's been very obvious that Jesus has been gracious to us. Okay. I've teased about this before, but no Christian should walk around with a look on their face like they're waiting on a gallbladder attack to happen. Okay. If anybody, it was Jesus parting promises his parting provision in the, the upper room discourse, John chapter 14, 15, and 16, that one of the, the things that he bequeathed to us is joy, fullness of joy, and not some kind of man-made generated joy, but his joy in us. Okay. And, and what is the provision of this? It comes, get this, in Ruth's life from Boaz and in our life from Jesus Christ, it comes through his Words, his words. I love Ruth's response. Notice verse number 13. Then she said, let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me. 
and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid. That's a good pattern for all of us husbands. And all you ladies said? Ladies. Do, do you know what the, when, when, Boaz, when Ruth said you've spoken friendly? The, the literal idea is you've spoken to my heart. You've spoken to my heart. The word comforted, she said you've comforted me. It literally means to relieve the tension, to remove the fear, to get rid of the stress. What, a, what an example for us as husbands, as men, to speak words to our wives that bring them comfort and that speak to their hearts. Let us say with Peter. When Jesus looked at Peter and the other disciples and said, as hundreds of other disciples were going away, will you also go away? Let us say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of life. <laughs> what a summary. What a picture. Fourthly and finally, as I look at the help of grace that Boaz was in Ruth and Naomi's life through his wealth, through his willingness, through his words, but finally through his works. And much of this we'll see in more detail as we move to chapter 3 and 4. And it overwhelms us as we look at all that Boaz had done and would continue to do for Ruth and Naomi. I like chapter 3 and verse number 18 when Ruth comes back from asking Boaz to do the work of the kinsman redeemer. Naomi says to Ruth, verse number 18, Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. Let me just say this about Jesus Christ. When it comes to the work of your salvation, he has already finished it. Okay. He's already finished it. And that is meant to provide soul rest for us. But when it comes to the provision of all of our needs... And our being complete in Him and Christ being all that we need and our being satisfied in Him, let us just sit still and rest because our kinsman Redeemer has finished the work. Hmm. The other man who was closer kin than Boaz was worried that his inheritance would be marred by his marriage to a Moabitess. I'm glad that Boaz was willing to take that risk. I'm glad that Jesus was willing to make himself of no reputation, to take upon himself the form of a servant, to accomplish the work of redemption, not for himself, but for us desperately in need of it. When I think of the miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ did, His works on behalf of creation. Think of His works of dis on disease, healing the blind, the deaf, the dumb, the lame, lepers, those stooped over, those with the issue of blood. Every miracle that Jesus performed, get this, was just an initial down payment on what's going to happen when He makes all things new. 
I think about his miracles of distance, healing in absentia. (laughs) I think the miracles that he did as he showed his dominance over creation, standing on the bow of a storm-tossed ship and saying, peace, be still. And the Bible tells us that the sea was immediately calm. All of the scientific after effects of the influence of that form, he didn't just stop the storm, he stopped the effects of the storm. And he can stand on the bow of the storm-tossed vessel of your life and he can say, peace, be still, and the waves of circumstances are under his control. I think of his miracles over demonic powers multiple times. I think of his miracles where he supplied great need and provided great joy, whether it was at a wedding in Cana, whether it was when taxes were due, or when 5,000 men, women, and children needed fed. I think about his power, his miracles over death, whether it was raising Lazarus from the dead or a little damsel or the only son of a destitute widow of Nain. What a helper Jesus was. What a helper Jesus is. But of all those 36 plus miracles that are specifically recorded and keeping in mind what John said at the end of his gospel, that if everything Jesus did was recorded, the world couldn't contain the books. I like big libraries, but I'm not sure I can fathom one that big. But the greatest of all of his miracles is that he as the second person of the Trinity, became man. Lived a perfect life. Died a substitutionary death to pay the penalty for our sin. And then the miracle of his raising again and his ascending to the right hand of the Father, get this, forever different in that glorified body, forever different. Jesus will have a body for all eternity as a token of his love for you and for me. And in that body... In that body, he bears still the scars of the cross. As as an eternal reminder to us of the price that was paid so that we could be there. We are complete in him. Christ is all I need. He that hath the Son hath life. Father... Pray if there's one here tonight that does not know you as Savior, that before they leave, they would get that settled. They would come to me and say, Pastor, listen, I'm not sure about my relationship with Christ. I'm not sure about my salvation. Can we talk? And Lord, I would love nothing more than to do that. I pray too for believers that are here this evening, maybe dealing with some anxiety, some burden, some need. I'm thankful that you don't just meet our needs, but you meet our desires too. Psalm 145 and verse number 16. And you do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Lord, what wonderful grace, what wonderful help comes to us through the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that 
as we've been reminded this evening of the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus, that our hearts would rest. Just as Ruth's heart was able to rest in the work of the man Boaz, infinitely more, our hearts can be at rest in the work of our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. What a tremendous reminder tonight. I pray as we've taken this time to look at Jesus, that our hearts have been encouraged, challenged. If one is without Christ, I pray that the Spirit of God, as He draws them, that He would find a willing response. In Jesus' name.